Section 9 of Mysteries of London, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Mysteries of London, Volume 4, by George W. M. Reynolds. The Insolvent Debtor's Court. Passing through Portugal Street, Lincoln's Inn Fields, you may perceive a low, dingy-looking building, protected by a row of tall iron railings, and with steps leading to the front entrance. This structure is of so dubious an aspect that it places the stranger in a profound state of uncertainty as to whether it be the lobby of a criminal prison or a Methodist chapel, and the supposed stranger is not a little surprised when he learns, on inquiry, that this architectural mystery is neither more nor less than the court for the relief of insolvent debtors. At about nine o'clock in the morning, the immediate vicinity of the court begins to wear a very business-like appearance. That is to say, both sides of the street are thronged with the most curious specimens of human nature which it is possible to encounter outside of Newgate or of the bench. The wonder is whence such a host of ill-looking fellows can have sprung, or whither they can be going, unless it is to either of the two places just named. Then comes the natural question, but who are they? the answer is at hand. Some are the turnkeys of the county prisons and the tipstaves of the bench, having in their charge prisoners about to be heard at the court. Others are the usual hangers-on and errant-seekers who are always to be found lurking about such places, while a third set are the friends or else the opposing creditors of the insolvents. The public house opposite the court and the one at the side are also filled with the persons of those descriptions and before ten o'clock in the morning many pots of porter are disposed of, many quarterns of gin dispensed in two or three outs, and many screws of tobacco puffed off in smoke. Inside the court, business commences in somewhat a more serious manner. Four or five barristers take their places in a large box divided into two compartments like pews in a church. A couple of commissioners seat themselves on a bench made in very humble imitation indeed of those in the courts at Westminster. A single reporter lounges into the snug crib so kindly allotted to the representatives of the press. Several attorneys and attorneys' clerks gather round the table, between the council's seats and the bench. The insolvents are penned up together in a sort of human fold on the right as you go into the tribunal, and at the back a crowd of unwashed faces rise amphitheatrically in the compartment appropriated to the audience. The commissioners endeavor to look as much like the judges of the land as possible. The barristers affect all the consequence and airs of sergeants-at-law, or king's counsel. The insolvents try to seem as happy as if they had nothing awkward in their schedules to account for. And the spectators raise heaven and earth to appear respectable. But each and all of these attempts are the most decided failures which it is possible to conceive. A general air of seediness pervades the place. The professional wigs are dirty and out of curl, and the forensic gowns threadbare. And the disagreeable impression thus created on the mind of the visitor is enhanced to no trifling degree by a sickly smell of perspiration, combined with the stale odor of tobacco smoke retained in the garments of the audience. Amongst the insolvents were two individuals whose appearance formed a most striking contrast. These were Mr. Joshua Sheepshanks and Mr. Frank Curtis. The former was dressed in deep black, with a white neckcloth, and black cotton gloves a great deal too large for his hands. 
He had also put black crepe round his hat, in the hope of creating the sympathy of the commissioners by producing the impression of having sustained some serious and recent family loss. His sallow face was elongated, with the awful sanctimoniousness which characterized it. His black hair was combed sleekly down over his forehead, and he sat bolt upright on the hard bench, every now and then raising his eyes to heaven, or rather to the lanthorn on the roof of the court, as if in silent prayer. Mr. Frank Curtis was attired in his habitually flash manner, and as he lolled back in his seat, he now and then bestowed a significant wink upon his attorney at the table, or exchanged a few familiar observations with the tipstaff, whom he had treated to egg-hot at the public-house opposite before they entered the court. But where was Captain O'Blunderbuss? Had he deserted his friend on this trying occasion? Gentle reader, do not suppose for an instant that the gallant officer was capable of what he himself would describe to be the most basely mainness, so long as Frank had a shilling left in his pocket, or the ability to raise one. The captain, then, was there, and in the vicinity of Mr. Curtis, for the terrible Irishman had posted himself as near as possible to the box in which the insolvents stand to be examined. In the first place, that when Frank should mount to that bad eminence, he might be close by to encourage him with his looks. And, in the second place, he had taken that particular stand as the one whence he could best dart ferocious glances at the commissioners, in case these functionaries should take it into their heads to deal harshly with his friend. And now the business of that day's proceeding commenced, and the clerk of the court bawled out in a loud tone, "'Joshua Sheepshanks!' "'Here, my Christian friend,' groaned the religious gentleman, drawing himself slowly up to his full, thin, lanky height, and beginning to move slowly and solemnly towards the box above mentioned. "'Now then, Joshua Sheepshanks,' cried the clerk in a sharp tone. "'Come, Joshua Sheepshanks, look alive,' grumbled the official who administers the oaths to the insolvents. "'Cut along, old fellow,' whispered Frank Curtis, giving the sanctimonious dissenter a hearty pinch on the leg as he passed by. Mr. Sheepshanks uttered a low moan, cast up his eyes towards the lanthorn, muttered something about his having fallen amongst the ungodly, and ended by hoisting himself into the box with some degree of alacrity, his slow movements having rendered the court impatient. "'Does any counsel appear for you, Joshua Sheepshanks?' demanded the clerk. "'None, unless it be the Lord's will that I should be supported by divine grace,' answered the dissenting minister, in so doleful a tone and with such a solemn shaking of the head, that the whole court was alarmed lest he was about to go off in a fit. "'I appear to oppose on behalf of several creditors,' said Mr. Bullowell, one of the leading barristers practicing in that court. "'Oh, the persevering bitterness of those rancorous men!' exclaimed Mr. Sheepshanks, clasping his hands together, and turning up the whites of his eyes in an appalling fashion. "'Silence, insolvent!' cried the clerk, in a sharp tone. Meantime the commissioners had both been taking a long and simultaneous stare at the religious gentleman, and though one was purblind and the other in his dotage, they nevertheless seemed to arrive in the long run at pretty well the same conclusion, which was that Mr. Sheepshanks was a dreadful humbug. The glances they interchanged through their spectacles expressed to each other this conviction, and the sharper of the two, who rejoiced in the name of Sneesby, forthwith proceeded to examine the schedule. I see that you were once a missionary in the South Sea Islands Bible Circulating Society, insolvent, said this learned functionary. Under the divine favor, I was such a vessel in the good cause, answered Mr. Sheepshanks, 
with the invariable nasal twang of hypocrisy. "'A what?' demanded Mr. Commissioner Sneesby, in an impatient tone. "'He says he was a vessel, sir,' observed Mr. Bullowell, the barrister. "'It is a word much in vogue amongst the religious world.' "'Oh, the insolvent calls himself a vessel, does he?' exclaimed the Commissioner. "'Well, he has come to a pretty anchorage at last.' "'And yet, sir, I can assure you he is no anchorite,' said Mr. Bullowell. These were jokes on the part of the Commissioner and the Council, and therefore the attorneys, the clerks, and the audience tittered, as in duty bound when the Whig forgot its wisdom and indulged in wit. And the insolvents all laughed, too, but for another reason. In fact, Mr. Frank Curtis had applied his right hand to his nose and extended it in a fan-like form. Or, in other words, he took a sight at the learned Commissioner and worked an imaginary coffee-mill at the same time with his left hand. Order being restored, the business proceeded. And, having been a missionary, I observe by your schedule, that you turned a dissenting minister insolvent? said Mr. Commissioner Sneesby, interrogatively. I was a brand snatched from the burning, sir, replied Mr. Sheepshanks, and, having sorely wrestled with Satan, Give me a direct answer, man, cried the Commissioner, sharply. Did you leave an institution connected with the established church and become a dissenter? Heaven so willed it, responded the sanctimonious insolvent in a droning voice. I had a call, and I obeyed it. Who opposes this man? inquired the commissioner. Jeremiah Chubley, vociferated the clerk of the court. Here, growled a man dressed as a bricklayer. Now then, Jeremiah Chubley, stand up in the witness box, continued the clerk. "'Come, Mr. Chubbley, make haste,' said Mr. Bullowell, the barrister, speaking more civilly, and using the honorary prefix of minister, because he had been retained by the individual to whom he applied it. Mr. Chubbley mounted the witness-box, and while the oath was being administered to him, both the commissioners inflicted a long stare on his countenance, just to satisfy themselves by this physiognomical scrutiny whether he were a trustworthy person or not.' For commissioners in the insolvent's court are great physiognomists. Very great physiognomists, indeed. "'Your name is Jeremiah Chubley,' said Mr. Bullowell, rising in a stately manner, and darting a ferocious glance towards Mr. Sheepshanks, as much as to say, "'Now, my man, I am going to elicit things against you that will prove you to be the greatest rogue in existence.' "'Yes, my name be Chubley, sir,' answered the opposing creditor. "'but I paid you to tackle that there sneaking-looking chap over there, "'and not to question me.' "'My dear sir,' said Mr. Bullowell, blandly, "'this is the way of conducting an opposition where counsel is employed. "'Your name is Jeremiah Chubley, "'and you are a master bricklayer, I believe?' "'I told you so a week ago,' replied the opposing creditor, savagely. "'Yes, yes, but you must tell the learned commissioners all over again "'what you told me,' gently remonstrated Mr. Bullowell. I believe you are the proprietor of a chapel in the Tottenham Court Road? Yes, I be, sir, responded Mr. Chubbley. I built ye, and a stronger, better, or more comfortabler place of wash-up you wouldn't find in all London, leastways bar in St. Paul's. Well, and this chapel was to let some three or four months ago, I believe, continued Mr. Bullowell. Yes, it were, sir, and I had blackguards up at the grocer's round the corner. Had what, man? demanded the commissioners simultaneously, and as it were in the same breath. "'He means that he put placards up at a neighboring grocer's, sir,' 
mildly explained Mr. Billowell. Then, turning again to the opposing creditor, the learned counsel said, And I believe the insolvent was attracted by the placards, and applied to you in consequence? He come round to my house, sir, just as me and my missus was a-sitting down to dinner, answered Mr. Chubley. It was bile pork and greens we had, I remember, cause says I to my missus, says I. Well, well, Mr. Chubley, interrupted the counsel. We will proceed, if you please. The insolvent came round to you, and inquired about the chapel that was to let? Yes, he did. And he asked to many questions about the organ, and the pulpit, and the westry, and so on. And, being satisfied with your replies, he agreed to take the chapel? Yes, and to pay a order in advance, which was eleven pound ten, answered Mr. Chubley. Well, what took place next? inquired one of the commissioners, growing impatient, while his brother judge took a nap. Please, my lud, he sits down and pitches into the bile pork and greens, responded the opposing creditor. There was a laugh amongst the audience, but as the joke did not arise from either the bench or the bar, the ushers bawled out silence as loudly as they could. The insolvent, I believe, not only omitted to pay the quarter in advance, said Mr. Bullowell, but succeeded in obtaining from you the loan of forty pounds? In hard cash, and that's what aggravates me and my missus so again him, replied the opposing creditor. But in what manner did he obtain those forty pounds? asked Mr. Bullowell. Tell the learned commissioners. Why, one of em's asleep, and so it's no use of speaking to he, exclaimed Mr. Chubley. There was another laugh, which the clerks and ushers immediately suppressed, and Captain O'Blunderbuss ran a narrow risk of being ignominiously bundled out of the court, for observing in a tone somewhat above a whisper, "'Be Jasus, and that's as true as that every rail Irishman loves poteen.' But the best of the business was that the somnolent commissioner woke up, and catching the fag-end of a laugh accompanied by the loud cries of silence on the part of the officials of the court, he immediately fancied that some person had perpetrated a great breach of decorum, and exclaimed in a severe tone, "'Whoever is the cause of disturbance must be turned out.' Hereupon there was another laugh, and even Mr. Bullowell himself was compelled to stoop down and pretend to examine his brief in order to conceal the mobility of his risible muscles. "'Come, come, let the business proceed,' said Commissioner Sneesby, anxious to relieve his brother functionary from any farther embarrassment." for the latter learned gentleman was quite bewildered by the renewed hilarity which his words had provoked. "'Tell the bench how the insolvent obtained from you the forty pounds, Mr. Chubley,' exclaimed Mr. Bullowell. "'Please, sir, my missus has only got one eye.' "'Well, and what has that to do with it?' demanded Mr. Commissioner Sneesby. "'Just this, my lad, that that ere sneaking feller got on the blind side of she, and began a-pitching into she all kind of gammon.' calling hisself a chosen wessel, and telling her how she would be sartin sure of going to heaven if we only let him have the funds to set up in business as a preacher. He swore that all the aristocracy was a-dying to hear him in the pulpit, and so he persuades my missus to be pew-opener, and he gammons me to call myself a helder. A what? exclaimed Commissioner Sneesby. An elder, sir, observed Mr. Bullowell for it is to be remarked that when judges at Westminster or commissioners in Portugal Street cannot understand anything, or affect not to do so, the counsel are always prepared to give them an explanation. Yet when these counsel become judges or commissioners in their turn, they grow just as opaque of intellect and as slow of comprehension as those whom they were once accustomed to enlighten. 
"'Well, go on, man,' said Commissioner Sneesby, addressing himself to the opposing creditor. "'Well, my lud,' proceeded Mr. Chubley, "'that there sniggering feller come over us all in such a way with his blessed insinuations, that we all thought him a perfect saint. We was glad to wipe off the dust of such a man's shoes, as the saying is. So I goes to my friend Cheesewright, the grocer, and I says, says I, "'Cheesy, my boy, you must be a helder, too.' So Cheesewright axes what a helder is, and when I tells him that it's to preside over a chapel in which a regular saint holds forth, and that all helders is booked for the right place in the other world, he says, says he, Chubbly, my boy, tip us your fist, and I'm your man for a helder, too. And now tell the learned commissioners what this business has to do with your opposition to the insolvent's discharge, said Mr. Bullowell, seeing that the bench was growing impatient. By my lads, continued Chubbly, scratching his head, that there incinivating chap gets cheesy to lend him his acceptance for thirty pounds, and he comes to me and gets me to write my name along the back on it, and so he gets it discounted and leaves us to pay it. Here Mr. Joshua Sheepshanks held up his hands and groaned aloud, as if in horrified dismay at the construction put upon his conduct. Silence, insolvent, exclaimed the usher ferociously. And now, Mr. Chubbley, resumed Mr. Bullowell, what answer did you obtain from the insolvent when you stated to him that you had heard certain reports which made you anxious to receive security for the rent of the chapel, the forty pounds, and the amount of the bill for which you were liable? He said as how that the chapel hadn't succeeded as he thought it would have done, that he'd been disappointed, and that me and Cheesewright must have patience. And when you told him that you and Mr. Cheesewright would not wait any longer, what did he say? He said we was a generation of wipers. And when you put him into prison? He sent for me, and said I mustn't hope to be paid in this world, but as I'd laid up for myself a treasure in heaven, he expected me to let him out a quad for nothing. There was a general titter in which Bench and Barr joined, and the only demure countenances present were those of the creditor who was done, and Mr. Sheepshanks who had done him. In fact, this pious gentleman was so overcome by the unpleasantness of his position, that he compared himself, in the religious anguish of his spirit, to the man who went down to Jericho and fell amongst thieves. Silence being again restored, two other opposing creditors were examined in their turn, and their evidence went to prove that Mr. Joshua Sheepshanks had obtained from them a quantity of goods under such very questionable pretenses that he might think himself exceedingly fortunate in having been sent to the king's bench instead of to Newgate. The opposition having arrived at this stage, Mr. Bullowell proceeded to address the court in a long and furious speech based upon the testimony that had been given against the insolvent. The agreeable appellations of sanctimonious hypocrite, double-faced ranter, unprincipled traitor in pious duplicities, and such like terms, were freely applied to Mr. Joshua Sheepshanks in the course of this oration. The learned gentleman dwelt bitterly, but not one atom more severely than the subject deserved, upon the rascally scoundrelism which is practiced by those persons who are denominated saints. And he concluded a rather eloquent speech by praying the court to express its sense of the insolvent's criminality by remanding him for as long a period as the Act of Parliament would allow. When called upon for anything he might have to say in his defense, Mr. Sheepshanks applied a white handkerchief to his eyes, and, after shaking his head solemnly for several moments, he revealed his lugubrious countenance once more, purposely elongating it 
until he fancied he had tortured himself into as impressive a pitch of misery as one could wish to behold. He then began a tedious and doleful dissertation upon the vanity of earthly things, marveled that his opposing creditors should prefer the filthy lucre to the welfare of their immortal souls, declared that when he first went amongst them he found them lamentably benighted, but that he had at one time brought them to a state of grace, complained that they had treated him as if he had been a vessel of wrath, whereas he flattered himself that he was in a most savory state of godliness, hinted rather significantly that he looked upon his present predicament as a glorious martyrdom in the good cause, and wound up with an earnest prayer to the commissioners that they would not be moved by the men of Belial against him, but that even as heaven tempered the wind to the shorn lamb, they would modify their judgment according to his lamentable condition. To this speech, delivered in the most approved nasal twang of the dissenting pulpit, and with many doleful moans and frightful contortions, Commissioner Sneesby listened with exemplary patience. So indeed did his learned brother judge, but in this latter case it was with the eyes shut. The moment, however, the harangue was brought to an end, the eyes alluded to opened slowly and gazed rather vacantly round. But with judicial keenness they speedily comprehended the exact stage of the proceedings, and the possessor of the sleepy optics forthwith began to consult with his coadjutor in solemn whispers. Their conversation ran somewhat in the ensuing manner. "'It is getting on for one o'clock, and I begin to feel quite faint,' said the somniferous commissioner. "'A chop and a glass of sherry will do us each good,' observed Mr. Sneesby. "'Bullowell does make such long-winded speeches.' "'Well, so he does. But I always pretend to listen to them, and thus he enjoys the reputation of having the ear of the court. "'I am going to dine with Sergeant Splutterby this evening.' and so I shall leave at about four o'clock. Very well, said Mr. Commissioner Sneesby. I shall sit till six. But what are we to do with this canting hypocrite of an insolvent? Six months, I suppose. He is a dreadful villain. Yes, and while you were asleep he made a frightful long speech. Oh, in that case, then, let us give him a twelve-month, and then for the chops and the sherry. Good. A twelve-month, and then the chops and the sherry. Mr. Commissioner Sneesby, having thus assented to the suggestions of his sleepy coadjutor, turned in a solemn manner towards Mr. Joshua Sheepshanks, and addressed that miserable-looking creature in the following terms. Insolvent, the court has maturely deliberated upon your case. We have listened with deep attention to the evidence of the opposing creditors, and the address of the learned counsel on their behalf. We have likewise followed you with equal care throughout your defense and we feel ourselves bound to pronounce an adverse judgment. Your conduct has been most reprehensible, aggravated, too, by the fact that your offenses have been committed under the cloak of religion. My learned brother agrees with me in the opinion that your proceedings have been most fraudulent. We might even use harsher terms, but we will forbear. The judgment of the court is that you, Joshua Sheepshanks, be remanded at the suit of your three opposing creditors for the period of twelve calendar months from the date of your vesting order. "'Stand down, insolvent,' cried the clerk. The discomfited Mr. Sheepshanks raised his eyes and hands upwards, and gave vent to a hollow groan, which made the audience think for a moment that it was a ghost from the tomb who was passing through the insolvent's court. "'Silence, insolvent,' vociferated an official, making much more noise to enforce his command than the pious gentleman did in provoking the injunction." 
You must swear to your schedule, said the usher, as Mr. Sheepshanks was descending from the box. Damn the schedule, muttered the reverend insolvent in a savage whisper. What do you say? demanded the usher. I pray to heaven to have mercy upon my relentless persecutors, even as I forgive them, answered Mr. Sheepshanks, with a solemn shake of the head. He then quitted the box, and forthwith accompanied the tipstaff who had charge of him to the public-house opposite, where he drowned his cares in such a quantity of hot brandy and water, that the tipstaff aforesaid was compelled to put him into a cab, and convey him back to the king's bench in a desperate state of intoxication. In the meantime the two commissioners retired to partake of their chops and sherry. The learned counsel likewise withdrew to their private room, where they also refreshed themselves. The attorneys stole away for a quarter of an hour, and the audience took little portable dinners of saveloys and biscuits from their pocket-handkerchiefs, so that the compartment of the court allotted to spectators suddenly appeared to have been transformed into a slap-bang shop on an inferior scale. The fifteen minutes' grace having expired, commissioners, counsel, and lawyers returned to their places. The audience wiped their mouths, and the clerk of the court called forth the name of Francis Curtis. End of section 9. Recording by Brian Keenan.